Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for sharing with us that wonderful, wonderful work. Let's continue to pray uh, for those who have come and shared and for uh, many who have shared prayer requests. Let's uh, continue to keep them uh, in your prayers. As Daniel said, we don't go to the throne of grace alone. We go as a, as a family and we bring our needs together uh, to him who is a good, good father and he cares for his uh, children so, so very much. Today is uh, the last day, uh, today's the last day of our Daniel fast, and probably one of the questions that uh, will soon be asked amongst those who've been fasting, if not already, is, um, what's going to be your first meal? What's the first thing you're going to eat? Uh, actually, people have been asking that already. What's the first thing you're going to eat? Where are you going to go? What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? And uh, three weeks ago, the question was very similar, but it was the opposite. The question was, what's the last thing you're going to eat? before you begin the Daniel fast. For those of you who don't know, Daniel fast is a very particular kind of a, a fast that comes from the book of the Bible. Daniel, when he was in Babylon, <coughs> and he uh, re- refrained from what he called the royal food and, and wine uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's table. And so he would eat fruits and vegetables and grains, which is what uh, some of us been eating. I know for some people, uh, one house church, it was not a very big surprise. They had all you can eat. Uh, Korean barbecue. That was their last meal. And they were together and they were celebrating at the same time, crying into their food, knowing that they're not going to eat this again for about three weeks. Uh, there was an, I, I was, uh, our brother Seho, I don't know if he's here right now. Uh, there he is. I was texting him and said, hey, you remember what the last meal was before you ate? Because I know that the fast has been uh, physically challenging for him. He said, uh, and he texted, I forgot exactly what it was, but he listed every ingredient of everything that he ate, including the drink. And then he said, by the way, it's the last time I felt full. <laughs> uh, for, for Olivia and myself, uh, January 31st is uh, Olivia's birthday. And so I know exactly what we did. We went to eat prime rib because that's Olivia's favorite thing in the whole world. We're eating prime rib and it was a great meal. Everything was going great until the end and the worst possible thing that you could imagine happening actually happened. We had leftovers. <laughs> because as good as it would be to heat it up and eat it, we're starting the fast the next day, and so we couldn't eat it. And so Olivia was crying, and this was just a really uh, difficult ending to the night. But the last meal, you know it's significant. It's important. You remember it. But have you ever had a real last meal? Not before a fast of three weeks, but a real last meal with someone. A last meal with a friend before she gets married and she moves to a state across the country. And as you think about your friendship, you think about your relationship, you think about all the experiences, and you begin to have girl talk and deep girl talk, and you start crying, and oh, I'm going to miss you. And then they go. Or a, a time where your parents came to visit you in a state that was not their home, and you had one last meal together before they hopped on a plane and flew back. Or one last meal with a relative who was sick, a sick family member who lives in another country, and you didn't know if you would ever be able to see them again. All of a sudden, that meal takes on greater significance and greater importance, doesn't it? This morning, as we come to the house of the Lord, we want to look at the last meal that Jesus had together with his beloved disciples, the people that he called family for the past last three and a half years of his life. And we're going to see the most significant meal that the world has ever seen and talk about what makes it so important, what makes it so significant, what it meant back then, and what it means 
today. Let's look at Matthew 26. We're going to read the next section from where we left off last week. We're going to read Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30, about the Last Supper that Jesus has. You remember what happened last week? It was the Wednesday of Passion Week, the next to last day of Jesus' life, right? The next to next to last, he would, pass, he would die on a Friday. Wednesday night, he was hanging out at the home of a man named Simon, who was a leper who'd been healed by Jesus, had a dinner feast, and a woman came and anointed Jesus with oil because we saw that great love leads to great sacrifice, and great sacrifice leads to great impact. That was Wednesday. We go forward to the next day. It's now Thursday night, just hours before Jesus would go to the garden, hours before Jesus would be arrested, and just half a day from the time Jesus would be crucified. This is God's word, verse 17. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not eat, drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Passover. It's the setting for the Last Supper. What do we see? Three thoughts, very important. The first thing, Jesus knows the worst about us, but still invites us to the table. Jesus knows the worst about us, but he still invites us to the table. One of the things I, I think as I read through the Gospels during uh, Harvest 201, one of the things that we do, we read through several books of the Bible, uh, the first of which is John. And if you read through any of the gospel accounts, which are by and large the biographical accounts of Jesus, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read the biographies of Jesus, outside of preaching, teaching, and doing miraculous works, I cannot think of anything that Jesus does more than eating. Jesus loves to eat. Right? Everybody needs to eat, but it constantly records Jesus eating. Like last week, John 12 says he's eating dinner at Simon the leper's home in Bethany. We see him eating all the time. He eats with Matthew at Matthew's house with tax collectors and sinners, eating, having a meal with them. He eats at the home of a man named Simon the Pharisee. Jesus is constantly eating. On the road to Emmaus, they're eating bread. After Jesus rises from the dead on the shores of Galilee, after his disciples had gone out to go for a fish and they catch nothing, he come back 
and Jesus is cooking breakfast for them on the sand by the sea. Jesus was constantly eating. When he wasn't eating, he was causing other people to eat. Remember one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did? It happened actually twice. Thousands of people, and they were hungry. And so what does Jesus do? He makes fish fillet sandwiches for everybody, gives it out to eat, and everybody gets their fill until they're stuffed to the point of having leftovers. He did that twice. 5,000 men, 4,000. He does it. The first sign that Jesus did was at a wedding. Where what do you do at a wedding? Why a Jewish wedding feast was a whole week long, seven days long. Why? What do you do for a whole week? You eat. That's what you do. And the wine had run out as a sign that the joy had run out. And if you've got no wine, you can't party. And if you can't party, then you can't what? You can't eat. And so what does Jesus do to help them to keep on eating? He makes wine from water. So that they can keep on eating. Jesus loved to eat. And when he wasn't eating or causing other people to eat, he was talking about eating. That the kingdom of heaven, it's a party, it's a feast, it's a banquet. Constantly the parables are about banquets and and these big old parties where people are invited to come off the street and to eat. The greatest parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15, the picture of redemption, the picture of forgiveness and reconciliation is a father calling his son to a feast. Jesus loved to eat. Man, this is comforting for those of you who like to eat. Man, I, I know some of our youth are going through a dating series uh, at Saturday uh, during our youth meetings. Here's bonus tip number one right here for dating. Okay, this is not part of the message, but just a bonus. If you are dating or interested in a guy who's no good, everybody says he's no good, he's terrible, downright dirty, filthy, everything, but he likes to eat, you can still bring him home to mom and say he's just like Jesus because he likes to eat. <laughs> Okay, that's off the record, right? (laughs) But Jesus loved to eat, and he lived amongst a culture where people loved to eat. Remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, talks about the beautiful picture of the church. And it says that the church devoted themselves to four things. Okay, of all the things you could think of a church devoting themselves to, singing, worshiping, praying, giving, serving, hospitality, whatever it is, One of the things that they devoted themselves to, check this out, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to prayer, and breaking bread. One of the four things that the church was devoted to was eating. They understood, man. They got it right in the early church. You want to do it, you do it right. You do it with food. And so Jesus, the lover of food, was sitting amongst a culture that loved food, who understood from him that food was important, and so the church became defined by the food that it ate. We understand the power of food to bond the people together, don't we? Uh, during this Daniel fast, 21 days, we haven't, you know, there's quite limit in what we can actually eat. And so one of uh, the single ladies at our church was hanging out at our house with, uh, with Olivia and the kids one day, and, and she was just kind of, I don't know if she was venting or just speaking matter of fact, but she said, man, these last 21 days, Nobody wants to do anything. No one wants to do anything. I want to go bowling, but no one wants to hang out. They don't want to do anything because they can't eat anything. It's a Friday night. I went to bed at 9.30 at night because nobody was wanting to eat. Because the power of food to bond a people together. Here in America, you could eat with anybody, and over a meal, you can kind of get to know them. But it's not like that everywhere. When we went down to Ecuador, the first two years we went to Ecuador, as we were eating with people, right, we'd have to eat in some public place. 
But it wasn't until 2011, our third year there, when people started inviting us into their house to eat. And so we'd go into their homes, and we'd be eating meals. And after this happened about two or three times, one of the natives who lives in Ecuador said to us, wow, this is very strange. Here in Ecuador, you don't get invited into strangers' homes. The only thing this means is that they now consider you their family. Because in certain countries, you don't just eat with anybody. Eating is an expression of intimacy. And that's how it was in the culture in which, Jewish, uh, in which Jesus lived. The Jewish Jesus lived. Eating with a person was a sign of intimacy. And so Jesus, as you read through the biographies, he eats with a lot of shady people. Which is why the religious leaders look at Jesus and they hate him for it. This guy's a, a drunken. He's a drunk. He's a glutton. What is he doing eating with these shady people? Because they knew that to eat with somebody means you're inviting them into an intimate relationship. And when Jesus invites shady people to eat, he's saying, listen, I know everything about you, but I still want to invite you in. That's why Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I must have dinner with you today. The people are like, are you kidding me? Do you know who this guy is? And Jesus is like, of course I know who he is. And perhaps of all the people that Jesus calls to a meal with him, nobody is as shady as the one that we see here in this passage. There's a man, we saw this last week, if you were here, just the passage right before, you can just look at the header before verse 14, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. So Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Judas, maybe he doesn't know that at this point in time. And the whole time as they're sitting around to eat this meal, Judas must be thinking, I hope he doesn't know. I hope he doesn't know because if he knows, it's going to be really awkward, a really awkward meal. Can you imagine? You're on a date with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and they know that you're, the reason you've called them out was so that you could break up with them. Right? That's, a, that's a sad meal. That's an awkward meal. And so Judas, knowing he's going to betray Jesus, has got to be hoping against hope that maybe Jesus doesn't know. But you begin to see Jesus tip his hand here. Right? When he starts talking, verse 17, uh, about the Passover, verse 18, teacher says, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples. Right? The meal is going to be prepared. Jesus says in verse 20, he, he just kind of brings it out. I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And all of a sudden, this kind of pricking at the heart of Judas, because he knows he's talking about me. He says it again in verse 22. They begin to say, uh, surely not I. And then verse 23, Jesus says, the one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Verse 24, he says it again, woe to that man who betrays me. Verse 25, Judas looks at Jesus and says, surely not I, Rabbi. With every time that Jesus mentions it. He's exposing the heart of Judas, helping him to see what is in his own heart and saying, Judas, I know everything. And yet at the same time, though I know, every time he calls him out, he's inviting him to a place of repentance. You see that? He's not just saying, I have this knowledge, but every time there's a questioning, every time there's a knowledge, it is an invitation throughout the Bible. And all of a sudden, Judas realizes that Jesus knows. Isn't this 
amongst one of our greatest social fears. Man, I know some of us are coming here and and we go to house church and, and we share, but we really in our heart of hearts, we think if they knew the truth about me, they wouldn't want to sit at a table with me. If they knew the truth about me, they wouldn't want to be my friend. You ever thought like that? You thought like that, then you probably have secrets in your heart. The reason we have secrets is because we don't want people to know. And the reason we don't want people to know is because we've got secrets. We all have them, don't we? If only they knew, and people wouldn't be patting me on the back like, on, on the back like they do. When I was about four years old, I uh, went to child care up in Virginia. It was a place called Kinder Care. You, anyone ever go to Kinder Care? Like a child care, they, parents drop you off, and it's kind of a nightmare. But I was there about four years old, and I was at Kinder Care. And this one particular day, my stomach was having issues, and I had to go to the bathroom. It was really bad. And so I went to the bathroom. I don't exactly remember all of the details, but one thing I remember is as I was little four-year-old me wiping my little four-year-old backside, um, it took a long time for me to wipe it. Like multiple sheets of toilet paper were coming out. And in my little four-year-old mind that had seen a toilet clogged in the past, I said, if I put all this toilet paper into the toilet, it's going to overflow and I'm going to get in big trouble. And so I had a split second to think about what I was going to do. Am I going to let it overflow, or am I just going to try and cover my tracks? And so I tried to cover my tracks, and this is what I did. Instead of flushing down the toilet, I just dropped it on the floor. Once, twice, three times. There probably was like at least four soiled things of toilet paper on the floor of that little kinder care bathroom. And I washed my hands, and then I ran out, and I minded my business. Hopefully, nobody will notice the four pieces of toilet paper with poop on them on the ground in the bathroom. I went about my business. I was sweating, thinking, oh, how about I don't get busted? Maybe no one will go in there for the rest of the day, and I can scoot out home and come back, and the janitor will clean it up. A couple minutes later, the teacher went in there, and then she comes running out. And she says, who put toilet paper all over the floor? I just minded my business. I was like looking at my pants, hoping that nobody would call me out. I didn't want to make eye contact with the teacher. And this one stupid boy said, I don't know who did it, but David was the last one in there. (laughs) So I, I looked up and I said, no, I wasn't. You were. And I pointed at him. I think the teacher knew that it was me. So she said, David, come over here and come clean up your mess. And that was a walk of shame if there ever was one. Like all the kids are staring at me. Why did he put poopy toilet paper on the floor? I'm walking with my little bowl haircut and I'm so like embarrassed. And as I'm on my hands and knees picking up this poop, the only thing my little four-year-old brain was thinking was, man, now my friends aren't going to like me anymore. I hope that they still let me play with them. I hope that they don't think that I'm yucky. I hope that they still like me as I put that into the toilet. As I walked out of there, I can't help but think that maybe that's what some of us think too. And if they saw all the poop that I was hiding, and they wouldn't want to be my friend. They saw all the poop that I had left behind. They wouldn't see me the same way. Sometimes the stakes are a lot higher. I remember talking last year with this girl at a retreat she was telling me, I mean, she had gone down the wrong path very quickly within a period of a few months, but she was telling me kind of where it all came from. 
And she said when she was in uh, senior year in high school, she started seeing this guy, really great guy. And as they started talking, you know, she, in her mind, she thought they were getting serious. And so she said, I need to tell him about my past, about my life. And she began to say, basically, hey, I was in a relationship with somebody, and I wasn't pure. I, I compromised my purity. I gave my virginity to another man. And she took a great risk to do that. And he looked at her, and he said, if that's true, then I can't be with you anymore. And he left. And she said, from that point on, she said, you know what, forget it then. If they're not going to like me for who I am, I'm just going to. And she went on this, this, this deep and dark path into an abyss of immorality. Maybe some of us feel like that. Man, I, if, if only they knew, I might not ever get married. If they knew, people wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. Judas had some secrets, not only things that he had done, but things that he was going to do. And Jesus knew everything about Judas and yet still invited him to dine with him. In fact, every time he calls out that word betrayer, he's inviting Judas to come back to him. In fact, even before this meal was ever served, Jesus sat down amongst the disciples and with his tender hands, he massaged the calloused feet of Judas and the warmth of that water massaging the callousness of his heart so that somehow maybe Judas would be led to repentance. And in John 13, the gospel writer John says Jesus one last time holds out a piece of bread to Judas and he offers it to him saying, will you eat with me? Don't be a fake friend who denies, betrays me with a kiss. Be a real friend. Be a real friend. Will you be a real friend? And one last time, he holds out the bread in the hope that Judas might take it. But he rejects it and walks away. And he scoots out into the dark of the night. We can respond like Judas did also. But the reality is that Jesus knows the worst about us. Not only our past, but he knows things that we have yet to do. And he still invites us to eat with him because that invitation is an expression of a desire for intimacy with us. Jesus knows it all, but he still invites us to come. That's the first thing. Second thing we see, if we are to dine with him, right, he needs to deal with sin. Before we dine with him, he needs to deal with sin. When uh, whenever someone eats, whenever you eat, you go wash your hands, right? It's simple. In our, in our, in our home, when, whenever it's time for our family to eat, Olivia will say, kids, go wash your hands. And so Manny and Elijah will run and they'll wash their hands and they'll come back. And then Elise will pull up a stool to the kitchen sink and she'll climb up on there and she'll reach her hands out trying to turn on the water and she'll look at Olivia and say, I can't, I can't. And so Olivia will come. She'll turn on the water and she'll bring out the faucet and she'll wash Elise's hand and she will take the responsibility to make sure that Elise is clean so that she can come to the table and eat with clean hands. Jesus is saying the same thing. Listen, I'm inviting you to dine with me in intimacy, but first, you want to dine with the Holy One and we need to deal with the issue of sin. 
And Jesus is saying, here, in this meal, that I'm taking full responsibility for that. In verses 17 through 19, you see in every one of these verses, the word Passover is mentioned. Because this is clear that this is what's on the mind of the disciples. It's clear this is what's on the mind of Jesus. And Matthew, the gospel writer, wants to make it clear that this is what's on your mind as well. Our mind, the Passover. It's time for the Passover meal to be celebrated. What did that mean? So Passover, if you, you know, maybe, or you don't know, it takes us all the way back to Exodus. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. And at this one point in time, God says, all right, it's game time. I'm going to set my people free. And so he sends Moses to go to Pharaoh, and he says, okay, Pharaoh, let my people go. Bangs the staff down, and Pharaoh says, no, I won't do it. And so nine times God sends plagues over Pharaoh's house, over the land of Egypt, in order that he would loosen Pharaoh's grip over the Israelites. But nine times plagued, nine times he doesn't budge. And so for the tenth one, this is what God says. For the tenth plague, God says, I'm going to send an angel of death to fall over every home in Egypt. Not just the Egyptians, but over the Israelites as well. The first time the plague is going to come to everyone because they needed to understand that it's not just the Israelites who have a sin problem. It's every single person, even those who are the people of God. And so the 10th plague, the angel of death, is going to come. And the firstborn son in every house in Egypt is going to get killed. You remember back when Moses was born, this was the reverse of the curse that Pharaoh gave. Pharaoh said every firstborn Israelite child, boy, would be killed. So God is reversing that. And he says when the 10th plague comes, there will be a dead boy in every home. It says, but there will be a way out of it. You take a lamb. And you kill it, and you take its blood, and you spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your home. Then when the angel of death comes, if he sees the blood of a lamb slain for the sins of the people, then the angel will pass over that house and go to the next one. Either you will have a dead boy or a dead lamb in your house as a way of saying that sin needs to be punished. And so it was. Every year after that, the people of God would gather together and they would eat a Passover meal in remembrance of what God had done in Egypt during the time of the Exodus. And so here they are, they're sitting at this meal, sitting at this meal, and Jesus makes clear this is a Passover. So here's how it would work. The Passover was a family meal. And so what would happen is there would always be a presider, typically the father of the home. And so the father would stand up, and the meal would revolve around four glasses of wine, each of them, each of them explaining a promise from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The first one represented the fact that God would redeem the people rescue them from Egypt. The second cup was a cup that represented the fact that God was going to deliver them from freedom, find, give them freedom from slavery. The third cup was a cup that represented God's divine power 
to heal and to redeem and to restore the people. And then it was a fourth cup of wine that represented the fact that he will be restoring the people to a right relationship with him. Four cups of wine, and each of them told the story. And at different points in the Passover, the presider would stand up and hold up a glass of wine, and he'd begin to explain it. Now, on the table, there was different foods. There was bread, right? There was bread, unleavened bread made without yeast. And the purpose of that was to remind them that they need to escape Egypt, but they could not wait for the yeast to rise. There was no time to waste. They had to get out of Egypt quickly. Therefore, bread made without yeast. There was also a bowl of herbs, which is invisible here. There's a bowl of herbs, which represented bitter, bitter, bitter herbs, herbs and vinegar and salt. And it represented the bitterness of slavery. And then the meal, the main course would be a lamb, representing the lamb that was slain in order that the people could go free. It wasn't no Daniel fast meal. There was meat at the meal. And people understood that these were the elements of the Passover. Last uh, last time we took communion, we're going to take communion again today. Uh, A lot of y'all said, man, that bread was so nasty. That's good because it represents to us the bitterness and the filthiness and the nastiness of our sin. Don't miss the point as you come to this table. For those of you who think this bread tasted good, maybe you still think sin tastes good. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Repent. Just kidding. It's purposely bitter. It's purposely unleavened so that we could understand. So here's what would happen. There's a very familiar liturgy that was recited. When the presider would pick up the bread, he would say, this is the bread of affliction, which our forefathers ate, reminding them of the affliction that they, uh, that they experienced in Egypt. He would pick up the herbs and he would say, this is the bitterness that our forefathers ate. Well, in between the first and second, between the second and third cups, the first two cups of wine would happen rather quickly. Then they would eat the main course. And it was at that point when the main course was done that Jesus would pick up that third cup of wine and we'd pick up here. But generation after generation after generation, they would hear the same liturgy, the same words spoken. This is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate and all of these things. And and so you hear, you begin to hear these same things over and over. Familiarity begins to breed content. People begin to doze off. They begin to get bored. They begin to tune out. So you can imagine the shock When in between the second and third cups of wine, when Jesus picks up the bread and he deviates from that long-held script and he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's not the affliction of our forefathers that brings you out. It is my affliction and my body that will be broken so that you could find freedom. All of a sudden, they begin to take notice. And when Jesus holds up the cup, he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, you will remember the blood that I shed for you. And all of a sudden, they're realizing, hold up, this meal is a whole lot different from any other Passover meal that we've experienced ever in our lives. And if the meal was set up the way that it is now, they would have realized one glaring omission from the table. They realize that everything is here. The herbs are here. The bread is here. The wine is here. But where's the main course? And immediately they begin to think, which disciple did not do their job? Because there's got to be a lamb at the table. 
And they begin to question, where is it? Where is the lamb? What are we going to feast on? And as Jesus sits at the table, he makes it clear the reason there's no lamb on the table is because the lamb is at the table. Undeniable is the imagery and the power of what Jesus is trying to say. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. There's all of that stuff, everything that you experienced, all of the Passover meals were pointing forward to a day that there would be a lamb of God that Isaiah talked about 700 years ago when he said, prophesied in Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter is silent. So he, when he's afflicted and oppressed, will speak not a word in defense of himself. It's what he meant when John the baptizer looked at Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's what Peter meant when he wrote that you will be redeemed and you have been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a spotless lamb without defect. And it's what revelation means when it says worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is making it crystal clear that if ever we are going to eat with him, then it's going to be because he has shed his blood for us. That he is the Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that the angel of death would pass over us. And he is unmistakable in saying, I am this pure, spotless lamb. All you need to do, all you need to do then is to take and eat. The one thing that Judas would not do. See, when you read this in verse 26, takes the bread, breaks it, gives it to his disciples, and he says, take and eat. This is my body. It would hearken them back to another time in another place where they would hear those same words. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, remember in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve all of this food to eat. And he said, but there's one tree that you should not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve, when she was tempted by the devil, what does it say? It says in Genesis 3, verse 6, she took and she ate. Words that for all generations symbolized rebellion. Jesus says, now take and eat. The words that symbolized rebellion now symbolize redemption. Jesus says forgiveness is here and it's found in me. Would you take and eat? Jesus invites us in the place of unbridled intimacy with him and he pays the price in order for us to get there. The last thing that we see then in this passage is found in the last verse here. In the verse 29, actually. A greater feast is waiting for those who will receive. For those who will take and eat, Jesus promises that a feast awaits. It says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus does a third cup and he does a fourth cup. And then he promises that, listen, I'm not going to drink of this again. In fact, that phrase, I, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until dot, 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 was a Jewish formula that says, I am making an oath. 
that I am promising this to you. He's saying, we're eating this last meal together. I'm going to die, but I promise you, we're going to drink of this again at another feast that is to come. And a lot of times, we might, th- we might not think we're going to make it to that place, but Jesus is saying, listen, if you take any, if you receive, then I will be the one that guarantees that you're going to get to that table and you're going to make it. Every time we come to the table, we do a 360-degree look around us. We come to this table, we look inward at our own sin, and we repent of our sin so that we can come to the table in a manner worthy of the Lord. We look outward. And he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we come to this table, we think of those people who need to know this message. We look upward and we see that the Lamb of God is no longer in a, on a cross or in a tomb anywhere, but he's seated on high. We look around us and we realize that this is a family meal, that we're in this together with brothers and sisters. We look backwards at the cross and we see that he has done this, but we also look forwards to the time when we will eat of this meal again in glory and we will see Jesus face to face. Does that excite you at all? My goodness. To see Jesus and to dine at a table with our king, to see the lamb of God slain for our sins and to feast at a table with him. This is our great hope. This is our great longing. This is what we have to look forward to. We don't just trudge through the day trying to make it and then one day whoop, we die and we go to heaven. That's not it. When, when Elijah started preschool, the first few weeks of school, he would cry every day when we drop him off. Cry every day and say, oh, mommy, daddy, come back. And we'd say, Elijah, you got you to stay. We're leaving, right? We're paying good money for you to be here, so just don't cry. And we'd go. And so after a few weeks, I remember having this conversation. Like, this is a real conversation. I'm not making this up. We had a real conversation. I said, Elijah, why do you cry so much at school? And he says, because I have to wait a long, long time before you come back. So in my mind, I'm thinking, man, he doesn't do anything. He just sits there and looks out the window waiting for us to come back home. That's a terrible way to live life. But that's how a lot of us live. We live these miserable lives of quiet desperation. I forget who said that. We live these miserable lives just waiting until it's going to end. There's a better way to live. If you know you've got something to look forward to. So uh, my in-laws, Olivia's parents, the kids' grandparents came in town on a Monday night, and they brought a bunch of food for us, none of which we could eat yet uh, because it's the fast. But interspersed amongst all these things, they brought these little trinkets for for Manny, and they would bring these necklaces, and Manny would put them on, and Elijah would run, and he said, Manny, is one of those for me? And he said, no, these are all girl necklaces, Elijah. And so he would go out to the garage where the car was parked, and he said, is there anything for me? And then they would bring in these clothes, bag of clothes, right, which is from Manny's older cousin, girl cousin. And they bring in these bag of clothes, and Manny's like, oh, my gosh. And she's taking it out. Oh, this is my size. This is so beautiful. And she's spinning around. And Elijah says, is there any clothes for me? And this is all girl clothes. And then they bring in this, like, pink Doc McStuffins little karaoke thing. And, and Manny goes into the room and closes the door, and she's playing with it. And Elijah walks in, and it's like, Manny, what are you doing? And she says, I'm playing with my new toy. And he's like, can I play with it? And she goes, no, this is girl stuff. So he goes to the garage. He's like, Graham, is there something for me? But Grandpa's not answering. And so when we realize that everything has been brought into the house, Elijah tugs on my hand, and then he tugs on because I didn't know, and then he tugs on Olivia's hand. said, Mommy, Daddy, uh, did they bring something for me? He was really good. Man, other times, he, he, other children might cry, but not our Elijah. 
is there anything for me? Uh, did they bring something for me? He said, I don't know. Let's ask Grandpa. Did you bring anything for Elijah? And Grandpa had this guilty look on his face. But he said, Elijah, what do you want? What is one, what's the one thing you want more than anything in your life? And, and he said, yes, and I'll tell you if that's what Grandpa brought. Obviously, so Grandpa can go out and buy it, right? So says, Elijah, yes, yes. And he said, um, Paw Patroller, pup, something or other? He's like, yeah, that's it, that's it. And so Elijah's like, yeah, and he's like, can I have it? He's like, it's at the way at the bottom of my bag, so I can't give it to you today. And Elijah said, tomorrow? He's like, yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and he's so excited. He went to bed that night so excited that in the morning he would get his pup troller. I forget what it's called, pup, pup, something or other. Go to sleep that night, and he wakes up super early. He wakes up early, and he's like, Daddy, good morning, and he gives me a kiss. I say, yeah, Elijah, good morning. He says, let's go wake Grandpa up so that we can see what he brought me. And I said, Elijah, Grandpa doesn't want to give it to you until after school. That way, you can go to school, and you can be so excited to come home and get it when you come home from school. And he said, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. And so he got his clothes, and he was so excited to go to school that day. He ran, ate breakfast, ran in the car. I can't wait to go to school because there was something waiting for him at the end of the day. The Bible tells us, y'all, that we're not just waiting until the end. But there's something greater waiting for us. And when we know that there's something greater waiting, we begin to live with purpose. Man, Elijah was living with a skip and a step that day because he knew something amazing was awaiting for me. We eat at the communion table. A lot of you say, man, I can't wait for the first of the month because I love communion. I love communion too, man. I look forward to it. I long for it. I wish that every Sunday was a communion Sunday. But this table is just a faint glimpse of the table that we're going to experience when we get to heaven and we feast at a table and we see Jesus. Jesus in intimacy. There's just a faint glimpse of that. Everything that we've experienced on life, the most powerful moment of intimacy with Jesus is like a tiny little Daniel fast compared to what we're, we're waiting for in heaven. And when we get there, y'all, we're going to see Jesus in his beauty. And the table is not going to be this like dinky little table. It's going to be from east to west. And there's going to be such amazing food there. Everything that we gave up for the fast is going to be there, and we don't need to worry about gaining weight. We don't need to worry about cholesterol. We don't need to worry about blood pressure. We don't need to worry about, is it undercooked? We just eat it. Don't have to worry about food allergies. You don't have to worry about, is it gluten-free? Is it dairy-free? Am I going to get lactose problems? We don't have to worry about any of those things. The table is going to be so long, filled with food. There will be sushi and things that you always wanted to try when you went on that mission trip, but you were scared to try. You'll eat it, and you will never get sick in heaven. That's what's waiting for us. And around that table, man, there are going to be people who've come from North Korea from an underground church, and they're going to, they're going to call out to you, and, and you're going to be like, dude, tell me your story. And you're, going to, you're going to exchange stories of beauty and of grace, and you're going to talk about how beautiful Jesus is. There's going to be people from Iraq. There's going to be people from Egypt. There's going to be people from your house churches who are there. There's going to be people you knocked on their door in the Dominican Republic, and you shared the gospel, and you didn't think anything of it, but they're going to sit next to you, and they're going to say, you want some of my chimichurri? And then they're going to say, do you remember me? Hey, you remember me? You came to my house when you were 12, 16 years old. Remember, you knocked on the door and I, I prayed that prayer. You remember, you were the one who was standing there praying for me. You remember? 
And then you're going to realize, holy cow, everything that I gave up for the sake of the gospel was worth it. There's going to be people from the Amazon regions of Ecuador because you gave and you went and you sacrificed. There's going to be people who are there. There's going to be people because you gave your $800 to Building Bridges Project. People are going to come to know the Lord because of that. And they're going to say, I'm here because you gave. And in that day, every sacrifice that you ever made will all be counted worth it. And there will never be anything that you gave up for the sake of the gospel that you will say, I wish I hadn't done it. And as one by one people come and they tell you about the story of grace and somehow your story was connected to it because you did not waste your life because you cooked a meal for that group of people, because you prayed for this people, because you gave your offering to a missionary, they were able to reach somebody else and they're going to be at that table. And the one thing that's going to, you're not going to say, I did anything. You're going to realize I cast my crowns before the Holy Lamb of God. And the one song that's going to unite all of our hearts together is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. A thief on a cross will be sitting across from me. People from your family that went ahead of you into glory, they're going to be there and they're going to be saying, I saved the seed. I couldn't wait for you to come. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing? And every tear that you ever shed on earth, is going to be wiped away by the beautiful hand of a loving Savior. And he will say, I told you that I would get you to this place. And we'll realize that the one who promised remembered his promise. He remembered his people. He remembered his children. And his grace indeed was enough. Take a moment to think about this table of grace where Jesus Christ shed his blood for us in order that, guys, it's not just you get into heaven and everything that we could ever ask for, your greatest day multiplied by infinity, the people you love, the Savior you love, the food that you love for all eternity, paid for with the cost of his body and his blood. If that moves you to confession of sin before the Lord God, let's do that. Let's look inward. Let's examine our hearts before we come to this table of grace. Let's ask the Lord that he would forgive us, that he would cleanse us from our sins in order that we might be made clean, in order that we might be made pure. The word of God in Acts, the apostle Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man, can we strive right now? How is our conscience dirty before the Lord God? How is our conscience unclean before him? Let's take a moment in confession as we repent of our sins right now, just quietly before the Lord. If you want to offer up prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude, you can do that as well. If you're not yet a child of God, if you feel like maybe in your heart God is pounding and speaking to you. Guys, today is your day. This is your day. Take and eat from his nail-scarred hands. Say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need that hope. I need forgiveness. I need a future. I need a cleansing of my past. I need you, Lord God. Let's confess that. Let's open our hearts. Let's welcome Jesus into our lives.
Let's pray for a couple moments and then we'll continue to come to this meal. Father in heaven, we thank you. You're a good, good Father who loves us so much. Perfect love was demonstrated at the cross when the Son of God, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, that we have been reconciled to our holy God, that a way has been made possible for us to come home to our Father. Thank you that you're a good, good Father who loved us at such a cost. You who have led us thus far will continue to lead us home. So as we come to this table, may we find strength to receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. We thank you. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.